Good Thursday morning to you. It's Eric Erickson here. How are you guys today? One more day and then the weekend and you won't even know the difference probably because you're most of you are still at home. Although more and more traffic is picking up. Even in my neck of the woods, traffic is starting to pick up. Uh, welcome to the program though. We got a lot to cover and at 1030, Phil Kirpin is going to join me to talk about what the AARP is doing that probably if you're older than me, you should be concerned by. Uh, and uh, the vice president is coming to Atlanta tomorrow. Uh, to, he's been in Florida. We got to start with Ron DeSantis. Before we do, the hour of the show is brought to you by First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan, Georgia. They're a lender to small and mid-sized large businesses as well. Uh, and they can help your business get into the payroll protection program if you need it. If you want to apply, apply online at firstlibertyga.com for your small business. They can help you get in. They can't guarantee you get in. They're having a good track record of success. Uh, and what they want you to know is go to firstlibertyga.com, click on the apply now button, fill out the paperwork there, and also get your uh, proof of payroll ready to go. Remember with PPP, 25% of the money you get can be used to pay other stuff overhead, rent, things like that. Uh, the bulk of it has to go to employees. And if you don't let people go, you keep your payroll, it becomes a grant uh, and you don't have to pay the money back, which is a great thing. Want to learn more? Go to firstlibertyga.com and thank you to them for sponsoring the program. Let's get to Ron DeSantis. I spent a lot of time yesterday on DeSantis. Uh, because I, you know, I've spent time on Georgia and Brian Kemp and with DeSantis and in, in Florida now in particular, the media is peddling serious conspiracy theories about a woman named Rebecca Jones. Rebecca Jones was the manager of the geographic information system, the GIS system that Florida used to display the data. She was fired on May 5th and she told people she wasn't sure about the reliability of the data thereafter. It became a national media story uh, that Florida was potentially rigging the data. Now, one of the reasons this is happening is because so much of the media is clustered in the Northeast Corridor, and the Northeast Corridor is still doing poorly. And the media can't recognize uh, that perhaps there are leadership flaws there because they treat Andrew Cuomo as a saint. I mean, his, his daily gatherings with his brother on CNN almost amount to verbal incest. I mean, these two are on TV together, gabbing it up, glad-handing, and, and he never gets asked the tough questions about why so many people in nursing homes have died in New York City and why didn't he stop transferring uh, COVID-19 positive people into nursing homes. No one wants to push him on that stuff. No one wants to push him. They'll they'll tiptoe around it, ask him a, a general question and move on, as opposed to, you know, other governors like Ron DeSantis had stopped this in March, and it turns out that it worked. Do you feel at all responsible for these people? They don't want to do that. They'd rather engage in verbal incest between Chris and Andrew Cuomo on, on CNN, uh, toying about uh, sticking Q-tips in place. It just, it, it, the whole thing annoys me uh, that they would do that on a real, on a network that treats itself as a real news network. Nonetheless, DeSantis finally had enough about the media. This Rebecca Jones person, uh, she was not a scientist as she's been portrayed. She's not even a data scientist as she's been portrayed. She was just the manager. She had been a, a data analyst before that. She was doing data entry. She had an entire team, and she claimed uh, she claimed that she had uh, single-handedly built this entire system. It single-handedly coded the entire thing, single-handedly was responsible for it. And uh, more and more people in Florida pushing back saying, wait a second, she had an entire team. It wasn't her. The media hasn't cared to hear that. They want to paint DeSantis in the worst possible light. He's had enough. Our data is available. Our data is transparent. In fact, Dr. Burks has talked multiple times about how Florida has the absolute best data. So any insinuation otherwise 
is just typical partisan narrative trying to be spun. And part of the reason is that because you got a lot of people in your profession who waxed poetically for weeks and weeks about how Florida was going to be just like New York. Wait two weeks, Florida's going to be next. Just like Italy, wait two weeks. Well, hell, we're eight weeks away from that, and it hasn't happened. Not only do we have a lower death rate, well, we have way lower deaths generally, we have a lower death rate than the Acela Corridor, D.C., everyone up there. We have a lower death rate than the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio. But even in our region, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida has the lower death rate. And I was the number one landing spot from tens of thousands of people leaving the number one hot zone in the world to come to my state. So we've succeeded, and I think that people just don't want to recognize it because it challenges their narrative, it challenges their assumption, so they got to try to find a boogeyman. Maybe it's that there are black helicopters circling the Department of Health. If you believe that, um, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. Now, that's not all he said. Good for him for being fired up about this because they really have just been, um, they really have treated him terribly, the national media, considering what's happening in Florida. In fact, uh, the Washington Post, in response to this, essentially, has a hit out today that, you know, the numbers are going back up in Florida. Now, the numbers are going back up in Florida. It's important to understand because they're testing more people in Florida. And as they're testing more people in Florida, it clearly shows uh, that more people are being found to be positive, which is what do you not want people to be tested? That's part of the frustration here. Now, there's more. There's more. Hang on a second. Uh, let me find this uh, this thread. Uh, my buddy Brent, who is listening right now in Florida, sent me this. Yes, here we go. Uh, the governor of Florida going off on this particular person, uh, Rebecca Jones. Let me reroute the audio here so we can see this. This is off of Twitter from WFLA News in Florida. Uh, listen to DeSantis go off on this reporter who's asking about Rebecca Jones, claiming that she alone safeguarded the integrity of the data. Right. So first of all, okay. So one, she's not she's not a data scientist. She's somebody that's got degree in journalism, communication, and geography. She is not involved in collating any data. She does not have the expertise to do that. She is not an epidemiologist. She is not the, the chief architect of our web portal. That is another false statement. And what she was doing was she was putting data on the portal, which the scientists didn't believe was valid data. So she didn't listen to the people who were her superiors. She had many people above her in the chain of command. Um, and so then so she was dismissed because of that and because of a bunch of different reasons about how she did. Now, there's one more nugget that was left out of the conversation. A nugget I knew and did not say. I wasn't going to go there. DeSantis finally had enough and he went there. Oh, there, there's some impressive stuff here from, from, from what I've been told. Uh, listen to this come to find out she's also under active criminal uh, charges in the state of Florida. She's being charged with uh, cyber stalking and cyber sexual harassment. So I've asked the Department of Health to explain to me how someone would be allowed to be charged with that and continue on because this was many months ago. I have a zero tolerance policy uh, for sexual harassment. So her supervisor dismissed her because uh, of, of a lot of those reasons and it was a totally valid way, but she should have been dismissed long before that. 
Yikes. What? Yeah, yeah, there, there's the issue. Now, let, let, me, let me tell you. One of the things I've been told, and, and this is, you know how the rumor mill works. Uh, allegedly, allegedly, there is a, a, a very large uh, letter that is, is evidence there. Um, someone told me it was like a 300-page love letter or some such. I, I, I don't know, but there, there, are, there are some some odd details in this. And we, we, we got issues that have to be dealt with, and I'm, I, got, I got nothing. <laughs> uh, it just, it, it's, we, we, DeSantis finally had enough. And, you know, it's good to see a Republican governor push back on the media. And increasingly, you know, I have been one of the people out there who has said, I don't think it's good for the president to label the press generally the enemy of the people. Increasingly, it is obvious that the press, uh, much of it, not all of it, but much of it has just decided to run with that itself. And the press is not necessarily portraying themselves as the enemy of the people, but the enemy of Republicans. And I really do think there's something to this, that much of the American media at this point has internalized that Donald Trump is orange man bad. And as orange man bad they have a moral obligation to not just ruin him, but ruin anyone who comes into contact with him. And not just ruin anyone who comes into contact with him, but anyone who comes into contact with them. And not just anyone who comes into contact with them, but anyone who supports any of the above. So if you've got a Republican governor who has said something nice about Donald Trump, suddenly that person's the enemy. If you have a Republican governor whose competence is helping drive up Donald Trump's approval rating in his state, that person's the enemy. Because I do fundamentally believe in talking to enough reporters who I know and trust that even many of them will admit uh, they are appalled by Donald Trump. And they can't understand why people don't see it. And if you're appalled by Donald Trump, and you don't understand why people don't see it, well, then one of the things you're going to do is try to make people see it, and one of the things you're going to do is try to editorially steer your coverage to try to end that person. So the media is not necessarily the enemy of the people. They are definitely the enemy of of Donald Trump and the Republicans right now, and they're showing it. And to a degree, I guess, some of them, not all of them, some of them are enemies of the people in in part because uh, they are willfully trying to destroy someone that uh, the people support and dripping with disdain for anyone who supports them. How many profiles of Trump supporters have you seen where they are portrayed as hicks and rubes and bigots and the like? How, How many have you seen? I suspect a great many. And that is deeply problematic uh, because so much of the media dislikes Trump supporters, portrays them in the worst possible light, mocks them. I mean, all you got to do is turn on CNN and watch Don Lemon and and his take on Trump voters. Just watch it. It drips with disdain for middle-class voters in uh, what some of the media would refer to as flyover country that place they fly over between New York and Los Angeles or San Francisco or Miami. The, 
the media in the United States is run more and more by people who only care what people who live within 25 miles of a coast think. The exception to that is Fox News. And so guess what? The rest of the media has decided that Fox News is the enemy. And if Fox News is the enemy and Trump supporters are the enemy and the president is the enemy, they don't have to cater news to you people. You're bad. And increasingly what the media does is just try to reaffirm the beliefs of the people who live within 25 miles of a coast, which are overwhelmingly liberal. How much different would the coverage of COVID-19 be if CNN did not uh, exist within the bubble of the New York, D.C. corridor? You know, CNN was certainly left of center in uh, for, for most of its time. It had a lot of reporters who were in Washington and New York, but CNN itself was headquartered in Atlanta. So at least it made an attempt to understand uh, what people at the Walmart as opposed to the Whole Foods cared about. And it doesn't do that anymore. The network that does is called Fox News, and CNN now routinely attacks Fox News for daring to, to discuss what CNN doesn't like. I mean, there's an entire cottage industry within CNN uh, that is obsessed with what Fox News does and does not cover. If you, why, why should it matter to you what Fox does and does not cover? I mean, two can play that game, by the way. CNN has, has uh, routinely not uh, covered in their entirety the president's press conferences. CNN has not uh, delved into the Mike Flynn stuff. CNN has not done all these things. Two can play that game, uh, but you will note that Fox News is not bothering to do it because they're number one and they don't have to care about it. There are problems uh, with all the media out there right now, but one of the biggest problems is their lack of fairness in coverage of other states, largely because they interpret everything through the lens of New York City. They can't bring themselves to blame Andrew Cuomo because they've got to have a protagonist against Orange Man Bad. And so they assail these other governors who live rent-free in their head. The American people would be better off if they turned off much of the press and, and frankly relied on their local newspapers, except some of the local newspapers uh, have been bought up by national newspapers and are striving to, uh, you know. So when I was at CNN, I was warned by one of the, the, the prominent anchors there, never go on the daytime shows because this is when they were in Atlanta. And this anchor at CNN, who was not in Atlanta, said that he avoids as best he could the daytime shows at CNN because so many of those anchors were so desperate to prove their liberal credentials to be able to get promoted somewhere else. They didn't want to be in Atlanta. And so he found them to be overly biased, and, and he thought that the evening shows on CNN and the early morning show on CNN were, were fairly good. Go on those shows, just not go during the midday shows. And the same is now happening with some of these newspapers that are getting bought up by national conglomerates and where the editorial page editors and some of the journalists decide they need to prove their liberal credentials to get out of Podunkville and, and go up to the big city. And so you're increasingly seeing in the newspapers that are surviving at the local level that either they are independently owned and doing well and tend to actually have a conservative worldview or they are liberal conglomerate entities where the people are just uh, climbing over each other's backs to try to get ahead by going up to the national market. And it shapes how the news is portrayed. In Florida, the data is good. The fact that the media cannot believe it and the media suggests uh, there is, is some conspiracy to shape the data says way more about the media than anyone else. 
And that's unfortunate at a time we actually could use a free, fair press in the United States. Welcome back. You know, I, so I mentioned the uh, the CNN nonsense uh, with Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo and, and just uh, Don Lim. Well, CNN has an entire cottage industry that covers Fox News, and it, and it also covers uh, what other people in the media are doing. And also, uh, Trump has broken them, and, and so much of what they do now is is about Donald Trump and how they view Donald Trump and, and what Trump is or is not doing. And part of that is Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci, you see, has not appeared on TV of late. And oh, my goodness. Uh, they they have at CNN, uh, they're running conspiracy theory pieces on what has happened to Dr. Fauci. Well, uh, so a couple of things here. The government is moving to reopen the country now. And all 50 states are at some level of reopening. The media has jumped on the viral rebound stories. Oh, just like he said, the virus is going to rebound. The virus is going to, what do we do? Well, because the country is moving to reopen, you know, Dr. Fauci's not an economist. When they were focused on containing the virus and, and getting a handle on what they needed to do, Fauci was the guy they relied on. Dr. Burks was someone they relied on. But at this point, they are looking at how to reopen the country. And while certainly you need to ask the infectious disease experts and the doctors uh, what protocols need to be in place for people to go back to work, what you're really interested in is getting people back to work. And by the way, uh, there is data out there that the country may be rebounding uh, to some degree sooner than some people expected. In particular, uh, there is uh, home mortgages, uh, mortgage uh, home purchases are suddenly uh, going up. Spending in retail is on the rebound. Spending in restaurants are on the rebound. You know, so I'm here in Macon, and a lot of the, the most popular local restaurants in Macon have been closed down for a while. Uh, downtown, um, Piedmont Brewery, uh, which at some point I just, uh, at some point I'm going to tell you people to meet me in Macon at Piedmont because they got good food and great beer. Uh, and uh, you'll just have to drive to Macon to hang out with me. Uh, but so Piedmont is reopening, I believe, next week. Um, the Rookery, which is one of the, the best restaurants in Macon, is reopening. Uh, the, the major restaurants in Macon are starting to reopen, and this is happening across the state. It's not just Macon. In Savannah, you're seeing it. In Atlanta, you're seeing it. I've got to be in Atlanta tomorrow. I was surprised, actually, by the number of restaurants that have decided to reopen in Atlanta. Some had said they didn't think they would open until June, uh, middle of June, maybe July, and now they're opening. Progress, progress. Well, you know what? You, you, you know who's not an expert in reopening businesses? A government epidemiologist. I, I, I know you're surprised by this. I, I, I know uh, you, you think Dr. Fauci is, is an expert on everything. Well, at least some people do. And listen, I'm a big fan of Dr. Fauci's. I, I, I think his advice was indispensable. And I think it was, was really bad that there were a lot of people out there on the right who tried to undermine him and tried to get him fired when the president had no intention of firing. It was all very silly. But he's not an economic expert. He's not an expert on reopening the economy. So I, I it, in, in that sense, I understand 
why the president of the United States is uh, kind of sidelining him right now. It's not a conspiracy. It's that the priorities of the government are changing from shutting down the country and keeping a disease from spreading to, okay, we've got this contained. Now let's reopen the country. We need to listen to the business experts on how they feel comfortable doing it. So, of course, the man is going. There's no great conspiracy theory here. It's totally understandable, unless you're a CNN viewer, apparently. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. Uh, more important than recipes right now. Uh, well, first of all, you can call in. The phone lines are open. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. More important, I, I keep getting asked about uh, who am I supporting around the state, and, and not everyone, not everyone. But uh, there are a number of them, uh, including, uh, so for those of you who are in middle Georgia, Beth Camp uh, over in Thomaston uh, in Upson County, uh, supporting her for the state house. But uh, up in, in uh, Rome, um, you know, I, I really do think that if you're struggling with who to pick up in the 14th congressional district there uh, to replace Tom Graves, Kevin Cook uh, is uh, undeniably uh, a conservative with a, a great track record. There are good candidates up there. I'm not going to say a bad word about them. Uh, but Cook is one who stood up to the Speaker in the House, uh, and he's got a track record. And I'm always worried about track records. And he's a good one. Uh, and Matt Gertler in the, the ninth and Rich McCormick in the seventh. Uh, and, and around it goes. But if you want to see the whole list, text Eric, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777. I keep updating it. So bookmark the link. I, I update it. Um, every once in a while, I was like, oh, I forgot. I need to put this person on. Um, but if you want to see the list, go there. Uh, it, my name is Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Not C, just it's C-K, E-R-I-C-K. You text that to 33777, and you'll get back a link with the list. And, and it, it's not comprehensive because I, 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 I'm I not going to vet every person who runs in the state. And I actually uh, rely on a bunch of other people so people don't bother me. I, I get these emails. Like, How can I get your endorsement? You can't. That's the short answer. Now, we need to move on because you have probably gotten an alert on your phone that you have an Apple update. If you have an iPhone, you got an Apple update. And if you don't have an iPhone, you've got a an Android device probably, and you too have an update. I can read for you uh, what the Apple update says, and I need to explain it to you. Yeah, believe it or not, this is all tied into the news of the day. Here's what the Apple one says. I, I, I downloaded and installed it last night. iOS 13.5 speeds up access to the passcode field on devices with face ID when you're wearing a mask face. Well, I'm sorry, when you're wearing a mask face, when you're wearing a face mask and introduces the exposure notification API to support COVID-19 contact tracing apps from public health authorities. This update also introduces an option to control automatic prominence of video tiles on group FaceTime calls and includes bug fixes and other improvements. Some features may not be available for all regions or on all devices. Now, what is this about this well, first of all, you know, so if you if you're like me, you've got a one of the newer iPhones and it doesn't have the home button with your fingerprint, uh, you use Face ID and it works great, except when you're wearing a mask, it doesn't work. And so it, it, it's cumbersome when I'm in the grocery store and I'm wearing my face mask. I use an app called AnyList on my phone. Uh, and it has, so for example, so just l- let me explain this aside because I, I love this. Uh, so AnyList is a grocery shopping app. And you put in your grocery store 
and you can arrange the aisles of the grocery store in order that you're walking. Now, unfortunately, my Publix rearranged all the aisles, so I had to go through and resort everything recently, but it works. So, for example, uh, you just say you're getting milk, and it automatically is smart enough to know it's on the dairy aisle. Uh, so you're getting you're getting apples. Well, it's automatic. It, auto, it it knows it's in the produce aisle. You're getting uh, flour. It knows it's in the baking aisle. You're getting uh, chicken nuggets. It knows it's in the frozen section, and and so it sorts them based on category. And then you can rearrange the category. So, for example, mine knows that you go to the deli first when you walk into the Publix, and you turn to the to the right. You go to the deli first and the bakery, and you got your your um your fruit drinks and some of your sports drinks there. You've got your produce. And then the first aisle is what the breakfast stuff, the oatmeal and the, the power bars and the pop tarts. And, and it's it, then the next aisle for some reason now is the soup aisle. And then the third aisle is the baking and on it goes. And so it's rearranged to those orders. So I can zip in and out of the grocery store very fast. And I just use this. Well, the problem is that the screen goes dark after a while. And typically I can just touch it and it comes back on because it gets my face. Well, with a face mask on, it's a cumbersome process. So now this this update at least speeds it through to get me straight to where I can put in a passcode and get in. But that's not what people are focusing on. They're focusing on this language. And if you've got an Android device, I don't have the language, but you yesterday also got the update. Exposure notification API to support COVID-19 contact tracing apps from public health authorities. Let me explain this to you. Apple and Google are not following you around. They're not tracing you. They're they're not um, they're not uh, giving the government your location. What they're doing is they've provided an API. Now, what is an API? An API is an application programming interface. Application programming interface. So, your phone today is a it has more computer power than the technology that got us to the moon. Your phone is a computer in your pocket. And your phone has all sorts of capabilities. And in order for software companies, for application programmers to connect with all of the capabilities of the phone, you've got to have what's called an API, an application programming interface. You've got to be able to make it easy. The the software, the, the person who builds the phone and makes the underlying software makes it easy through an API for a computer programmer to develop software that connects to all of those technological bells and whistles of your phone. Now, if you've updated your phone, particularly if you've got an Apple phone, in the last year, one of the great annoyances for many people is when you download an app uh, and you launch it every once in a while, you get a, a notice, you get a notification on your phone, this app would like to use your Bluetooth. Will you allow this app to use your Bluetooth? And the app has nothing to do with Bluetooth. Bluetooth is typically where you listen to music. You got wireless, you got wireless headphones. Those wireless headphones depend on Bluetooth to send you the music. So why is my shopping app trying to connect to Bluetooth? Well, the reason is because some companies have invented a system where if you allow your app, say you've got, I don't know, you've got a Best Buy app and you go to Best Buy and and the Best Buy app says it it wants you to uh, access Bluetooth. You're thinking, why, why why does the shopping app want me to do this? Well, the reason is because some companies can use the Bluetooth signal to then track you and where you're going. 
So you go to Best Buy, you, you say, yes, I want this app to use my Bluetooth. Well, then you go to Target. Uh, in Target, uh, the Bluetooth signal picks up uh, Bluetooth readers that are in Target, and the people at Target resell the data, and the people at Blue at uh, Best Buy know you've gone to Target, and this entire database comes up. Your identity is matched, and uh, these different retailers can tell which stores you're going to and which ones you're not going to and where you're going in the stores. It becomes very useful consumer information for them. So whenever I let download an app and it doesn't need Bluetooth, I always say no because what's happening is these companies are trying to track you. Facebook is big on you uh, clicking yes on Bluetooth and thinking it doesn't matter. Facebook has built an entire algorithm based on this. So I don't do that. So a lot of people are concerned with this exposure notification API that Google and Apple are doing that maybe they're trying to track you. Maybe they're trying to, well, yes, they are. But here's the thing, and, and this is where I wanted to go with this because I'm seeing the conspiracy theories already building out there across the land. Apple and Google aren't tracking. Now, Google is. I, I Google, I don't trust Google at all. I, I trust Apple when it comes to privacy, not Google. Uh, but what they're doing is they want to allow the government to use Bluetooth to track you. But the key here, and this is important, please understand this. You have to actually download an app to your phone. Google, well, let me just leave Google out of this because I'm sure they are, but Apple is not tracking you based on your Bluetooth signal. They don't need that data. Uh, when you buy an Apple device, Apple builds the entire widget. They build the software and they build the hardware. They don't really need you. You're, you're, you're invested in their ecosystem now. And one of the things that Apple is selling is privacy. So they're not going to track you. But they're prohibiting more and more these companies from using Bluetooth to be able to track you as well. Apple doesn't like the fact that Facebook can use your Bluetooth on your phone and tell where you've been and what you're buying. They don't like that. And so they're making it harder and harder for companies to be able to use your phone Bluetooth to be able to track you. Because, again, one of Apple's core selling points is privacy. So... They're making it harder and harder for Facebooks and Target and Best Buy and J. Crew and, and all these other companies to use Bluetooth on your phone to track which stores you're going to and what you're buying. But they've got to make it easy for the government if the government wants to put an app on your phone uh, with your consent to be able to track you. They gotta they gotta bypass all these controls. So they've built this thing called Exposure Notification API that allows governments to get in and use your Bluetooth signal to measure how far you are from other people and uh, track the the signal of these other people. So that if you get COVID-19, uh, in theory, the government could round up all this information and reach out to all the people you've come into contact with based on your Bluetooth signal and say, hey, you've come into contact with someone with COVID-19. It's a huge invasion of privacy. You can see immediately how it could be abused by the government. So there, Apple and Google have put some parameters on this. One, they're not building the software for their phones. They, they know it would kill their business immediately if they automatically put software on your phone uh, that was tracking you and handing the information to the government. So they're not doing that. They're making it easy for the government to be able to use their information, but they're not actually providing the information, nor are they building the software, but they're allowing governments to build the software and you to be able to put it on your phone. And you don't have to put it on your phone. Now, here's what's going to happen is some places around the, uh, around the world, if not the country, are going to say you have to run this on your phone. 
And that is part of the problem. That that That's part of the significant problem is people are worried that governments are going to start making this a mandate. And if they do, that's a very bad thing for the government to mandate. You must run this software on your phone so that we can track you. Uh, so the other thing that, that Apple is doing, and this is, this is good for them, and I don't know that Google's doing it. I've read the Apple white paper. Uh, if you have an iPhone, Apple is embedding all of the information into a secure area of the phone that no one can actually get to except you. And even you, they're making it very difficult for you to get to. You've got to actually be able to to access your phone and know where to look and, and do all sorts of computer programming to get there because it's all in, in code. So if you use an iPhone, they're making it uh, all but impossible for the government to get direct access to the data. And if the government does get, this is the beauty of, of what they're doing, if the government does get direct access to their data, they won't be able to tell who you've come into contact with. Because Apple essentially is using random number generators to secure the data. They're using it so you get Bluetooth. And so here's the way it works. You and your friend are next to each other. You both got Bluetooth on your phone. The phones are running these COVID-19 apps, and they just connect with each other real quick, half a second, so that you know, okay, I've been by this person, and I was within six feet of this person. You can tell by the signal strength. So the Apple iPhone saves this in a hardware chip on the phone that the government can't get access to because it's not in the cloud. They can't hack a computer somewhere and get it. They'd have to have direct access to your phone. And then they get direct access to your phone and they can't get that either because you and your friend have separate phones that have security keys that use random numbers that swap. So the phones know what the random numbers are and the phones are designed not to hand over the random number. So there's no way for the government to get that if you're using Apple. I can't vouch for Google, but with Apple, they've done a very good job of making it very difficult for the government to get this and you've got to actually run the app first. Now, why am I telling you all this? So I follow online a couple of those conspiracy websites uh, on Instagram and the like. And a dear friend of mine last night was asking me questions about this. We were in a group chat about Apple doing this and what's what's going to happen. And I was trying to explain that uh, the, you've actually got to download an app to your phone. Apple's not making the app. Uh, it's okay. I've already downloaded it. But, I mean, I want to speed up Matt, the, the face mask stuff anyway so Apple can have my identity. I don't care. I just want to get into my phone faster. But you don't have to worry about it. You can, you can download the, the new operating system on the Apple phone. And they're not going to be able to hand your data over to the government. It, it, their phones aren't designed to work that way. They're not going to store the information in the cloud. So the government can't bypass you and go to Apple and say, give us the information. It's all going to be hardware in your phone that the government would have to get your phone to even try to access. And even then they couldn't get the secure key. So they wouldn't be able to get the information. But following some of these like QAnon accounts and stuff online to see what the conspiracy theorists are doing, I've seen overnight this great big buzz from people that, oh, Apple is tracking you for the government now. Google is tracking you for the government now. And there are people who believe it. They haven't actually read the information. They don't understand how it works. They don't know how an API works. And they don't know that you physically have to put software on your phone to make this happen. And so people are really believing it. And you can see the next great conspiracy theory building that these companies are, are tracking you on behalf of the government. By merely possessing a cell phone, the government is going to be able to track you. And people believe this stuff. And it's simply not true. And if nothing else, one of my goals of this radio show is to make you smarter than all of your friends, but also 
to make sure you don't fall for the idiot conspiracy theories online. Uh, y'all, with the, the conspiracy theories are going to be the death of us. On, on the right, you've got the QAnon phenomenon with all these conspiracies. In fact, there was an article I saw the other day from a conservative outlet that people are burning out on it. People are like, where are the arrests? The, so essentially, the QAnon people believe that, that the Trump administration is going to round up all the bad guys and arrest them all and throw them all in jail. Uh, and, and it's only a matter of days before Barack Obama gets arrested. And people are finally like, wait a second, they haven't even gotten Hillary Clinton. They're not coming for Barack. Barack Obama, and they're starting to burn out on the QAnon. But on the left now, you've got conspiracy theories about the virus, that the Trump administration has actually overinflated the models so that they look better than what the models are, and that in Florida and Georgia and Texas and other conservative states, they're lying about the data, and there are bodies piled up somewhere. You, you actually have people who believe this. On both sides, nobody trusts the government if the government is controlled by people they don't like. And all sorts of crazy people are going off into fringe territory here because they they failed at life and they believe everyone is stacked against them and life is stacked against them. And they can't admit they screwed up and they need somebody to blame. And so they're blaming their political opponents as opposed to they made an idiot choice or they believe nonsense. That's where we are as a country. Hello there. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The CDC is releasing guidance on opening small businesses. It's happening. You know, I got to say, I mentioned this yesterday, uh, talking to friends of mine, gym owners and the like. Uh, They've been very frustrated that there wasn't any guidance. They were having to do their own research. They were realizing how contradictory the research is. And and they kept coming back to that frustration. But then they would circle back and say, at least they got to reopen. In some parts of the country, uh, the businesses are still having a hard time reopening. And so at least you got to reopen. That is a good thing. Uh, it, it really, really is a good thing, and we're going to have to figure out a way to help small businesses. Jim Cramer was on CNBC this morning talking about this. Jim, I know that this is something you've been talking about for quite a while, just the idea that the retailers, the big guys, the ones who have been allowed to open from the Targets, the Costcos, uh, the Walmarts, the Home Depots, the Lowe's, those are the ones that are going to survive. But it, it, Doug touched on this, just the idea of what needs to really happen to make sure that smaller businesses and smaller retailers can really come back, too. And I think that's an important message. Oh, it really was, especially when he was talking about uh, going down the street and looking at them. But the problem is the government shut down this competition. Uh, this is something yeah. that if you were Walmart, the thing you would most want to do is have the government shut down your competition. A- and that happened. <laughs> Obviously, the government didn't want to have to do that. Uh, Walmart's essential. Walmart's the biggest grocer in the country. So uh, they deserve uh, all the greatness they had. And listen to what you guys said about all the hiring they've done. They, they're a good citizen. But at the same time, the government was, I thought, a bad actor in the sense that they let some big guys become even bigger. It was totally Darwinian, aided by the government. It was somewhat rigged. They didn't mean to rig it because of health reasons, uh, but the competition's really been wiped out. Yep. Um, we've got to figure out how to help small businesses. Uh, the majority of Americans are employed by small businesses. And it, it's really clear to me that the government doesn't understand exactly how to help those small businesses and how to get those small businesses going again. David Perdue was actually on CNBC and he got to interview Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. Uh, they, they had a conversation with the CNBC anchor by Zoom. I want to play you uh, David Perdue's conversation with Mnuchin. second thing is a lot of small employers actually encouraged a few weeks ago their employees to go on unemployment 
even though they were getting money and they were hoping that they would, when the revenue started, when they opened up, they would begin to then bring the people back and then use the loan to pay salaries in there. How would you help us think about, or help us think about um, how to deal with it? The Labor Department at one point said they were going to put some rules out about this premium. And the second thing is the enforcement behind if an employer wants an employee to come back to work, an employee should no longer be qualified for employment insurance. Would you address those uh, concerns, please? And if you could be brief, please. Thank you. And let me just say, you know, we are aware of the technical problem here, and we want to have a technical fix on the unemployment insurance. But specifically, let me just comment on the PPP. If you offer back a worker and they don't take that job, the, the, you will be required to notify the local unemployment insurance agency because that person will no longer be eligible for unemployment. That's not a bad thing. And, of course, the left-wing reaction to this has been predictable, that you're going to make people go back and die. They're going to get the virus. The Democrats want to extend unemployment into next year. Y'all, we're going to have a rebound of the virus. All the healthcare experts say we are. Maybe they're wrong. You know, SARS, if I recall right, SARS, everybody thought that, and it just kind of faded away. Maybe that'll happen with this. Um, there's all sorts of mixed data on it. Is it, is it seasonal? Is it mutating? Is it not mutating? Uh, how bad is it going to be in the fall? What will we have to fight it? It's going to be here for a while based on best guesses. And if that's the case, then we probably need to figure out a way around it. And part of figuring out a way around it is figuring out how to get people back to their offices. But there's a psychology to that as well that we should get into. And also, Turns out one of the cures from the left right now is, you know, you need to become a vegetarian. That's right. COVID-19, if you believe you need to fight COVID-19, you should become a vegetarian. I'll explain. Hello there. It's Eric Erickson here. Welcome to my show. It is six after the hour. The phone number, if you want to call me, you can call me. I'll let you. 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. A little bit of breaking news here. The jobless rate in Georgia is now 11.9% in April. The previous high was 10.6% during the Great Recession. Honestly, it's not as bad as I was expecting it, if I can say that. Um, I, I really did expect it to be worse. And it's not, thankfully. Um, and, uh Let's see, the jobless rate was at a historic low of 3.1% in February, rose to 4.2% in March during the first weeks of the crisis. The previous high of 10.6% was during the Great Recession of 2007-2009. The numbers may be worse this time, but the layoffs were not set off by a structural economic problem. The cause of the high unemployment rate differs greatly from the previous record. I've got no doubt we'll recover just as quickly and get back to record lows once again, according to Mark Butler. And that is true. The, the bulk of the layoffs come from uh, restaurant, bar, hotel, and other hospitality industries. Uh, and uh, so there, there is uh, a real issue here that as the bars, the restaurants, and the hotels, and the other hospitality industry sectors begin reopening, you will see more uh, jobs and a decrease in unemployment, and that is a good thing. We'll see how long it takes to get there. Now, in the process of this, you know, one of the things I've talked about repeatedly on here is is people and their priors and uh, not reassessing stuff. Well, I got a doozy for you. This is in the New York Times today. 
This is an opinion piece the New York Times is heavily promoting today. The headline is this. The end of meat is here. And the subtitle, if you care about the working poor, about racial justice, and about climate change, you have to stop eating animals. Okay, so... Notice the contradiction between the title and the subtitle. One is the end of meat is actually here. The, is, I mean, the, the title is the end of meat is here. Well, if it's here, then why do you have to stop eating animals to get to the end of meat being here? But then I thought it was already here, so aren't we already? No, of course we're not. Uh, this is Jonathan Safran Foer, the, the, the hero of the vegan movement these days, a, a, a uh, opinion journalist. He, he, let me read you some of this. Is any panic more primitive than the one prompted by the thought of empty grocery store shelves? Is any relief more primitive than the one provided by comfort food? Most everyone has been doing more cooking these days, more documenting of the cooking, more thinking about food in general. The combination of meat shortages and President Trump's decision to order slaughterhouses open despite the protestation of endangered workers has inspired many Americans to consider just how essential meat is. Is it more essential than the lives of the working poor who labor to produce it? It seems so. An astonishing six out of 10 countries that the White House itself identified as coronavirus hotspots are home to the very slaughterhouses the president ordered open. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the Smithfield pork plant, which produces some 5% of the country's pork, is one of the largest hotspots in the nation. A Tyson plant in Perry, Iowa, had 730 cases of the coronavirus, nearly 60% of its employees. At another Tyson plant in Waterloo, Iowa, there were 1,031 reported cases among the 2,800 workers. Sick workers mean plant shutdowns, which has led to a backlog of animals. Some farmers are injecting pregnant sows to cause abortion. You, you would think the left would like that one. Others are forced to euthanize their animals, often by gassing or shooting them. Can't have them use guns on the animals, you know. It's gotten bad enough that Senator Chuck Grassley, an Iowa Republican, has asked the Trump administration to provide mental health resources to hog farmers. Despite this grisly reality and the widely reported effects of the factory farm industry on America's lands, communities, animals, and human health long before this pandemic hit, only around half of Americans say they're trying to reduce their meat consumption. Meat is embedded in our culture and personal histories in ways that matter too much from the Thanksgiving turkey to the ballpark hot dog. Meat comes with uniquely wonderful smells and tastes. Mm, it sure does with satisfactions that can almost feel like home itself. And what if not the feeling of home is essential? And yet the number of people since the inevitability of impending change. Really? Oh, my Lord. This is, uh, y'all, come on. Seriously? This is, uh, here, we, here we go. And yes, I, I, this, this, this is my, my, my fretful environmentalist lefty voice here. You, you, you got to read it this way. You know the person was crying when they wrote it this way. 
We cannot protect our environment while continuing to eat meat regularly. This is a, not a refutable perspective, but a banal truism. Whether they become whoppers or boutique grass-fed steaks, cows produce an enormous amount of greenhouse gas. If cows were a country, they'd be the... Th <laughs> Wait a second. What? Did he just write the sentence? He did. If cows were a country... They would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world. <laughs> if, if, if cows were a country, if pigs could fly. <laughs> this person literally wrote that sentence, if cows were a country. According to the research director of Project Drawdown, a nonprofit organization dedicated to modeling solutions. Oh, modeling solutions to address climate change. You know, I had an entire segment I wanted to do on the modeling aspect of this. I think the epidemiological modeling has totally undermined the case for climate change modeling. Eating a plant-based diet is the most important contribution every individual can make to reversing global warming. Now, you know, you eat a bunch of plants, you're going to get gas, and you're going to poot, and then suddenly you'll be the third largest country based in cow farts. Uh, just Americans overwhelmingly accept the science of climate change. Probably not anymore after all the modeling stuff. Uh, this is just, y'all, uh, on and on it goes. I, I cannot believe... The New York Times did this. So I saw someone, I think it was Noah Rothman over at Commentary, noted that he's tired of all the clever writing. Uh, all the clever writing. It, it, listen, listen to this. Factory farming is to actual farming what criminal monopolies are to enterprise. If for a single year the government removed its $38 billion plus in props and bailouts and required meat and dairy corporations to play by normal capitalist rules, it would destroy them forever. The industry would not survive, could not survive in the free market. That's such BS. That is such baloney. There would be survivors. It, it, the 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 fact that you you come into this pandemic never let a crisis go to waste we've all got to become vegans maybe we'll eat soylent green as people you know uh at some point because you know you get rid of the cows well you've gotten rid of one of the polluters now we got to get rid of the people because they're the real polluter this is uh, it, uh, if cows were a country this is the intellectual heft of the left these days when it comes to climate change that we need to get rid of our meat. No. Uh, why don't you make it an individual choice? If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. But uh, the rest of us, you want a governmental policy to end meat? By the way, okay, let, let, me, let me go back to this. Here we go. If you care about the working poor, about racial justice, about climate change, you have to stop eating animals. So we're going to put all of the working poor out of work altogether by getting rid of the, the meat processing facilities, right? If you care about racial justice, really? Really? What about the farmers? What about the farmer's family? Screw them because uh, they're white people? Really? What? What about you put the farmers out of work? 
you know, frankly, farmers would love for the government to stop subsidizing parts of the the meat industry because they would get more for their money. And you know what? It's interesting here because what he posits is that uh, because of corporate bailouts and the like, we continue to keep these places open. You know, if you didn't have corporate bailouts, there would be bankruptcy. Some of these places would go out of business. Others would buy them and keep them in business and prices would probably go up. And you should be cheering that on if you're an environmentalist. I would cheer that on for the farmer. Now, the poor would probably have to find lesser cuts of meat, or maybe they would go vegetarian if the prices went up. I mean, why don't you try letting the free market work? Uh, The idea, though, that factory farms would go belly up uh, if they had to compete in the free market, most of them do, by the way. And the reason they're set up that way is the economies of scale within the free market. I don't think we should take someone like this who writes a sentence about cows if they were a country and and let them have really any say in how capitalism and the free market works. Uh, because I assure you what they're looking at is, is from the worst case scenario and they don't particularly understand it. You know, this isn't to defend letting these places stay open as a virus spreads. It's not. Uh, we've got to figure out ways to do it, but I, I, I want to I turn our eye back here to Georgia. Let's look at Gainesville, Georgia, and what happened. COVID-19 got into a poultry processing facility in Gainesville, Georgia, among Hispanic immigrant workers. And what did the state of Georgia do? They found John King, the insurance commissioner, who is Hispanic and speaks Spanish. And they let him build a coalition of state and local leaders and members of the Hispanic community members of the religious community who speak Spanish and are engaged in that community. And they went in there to those poor neighborhoods and those uh, communal living arrangements in in the shared housing facilities. And they began speaking to the Spanish speaking immigrants in their language about what was going on, explained to them what they needed to do. And you know, the result has been in Gainesville, Georgia. We've seen a dramatic fall off in COVID-19 spreading in the Hispanic community. They've turned the corner quicker than anyone expected. That's actually really good news. It's it's astonishing to me that someone would write that if you care about the working poor and the uh, Hispanic laborers who work in these plants, that you should shut them all down. Where would they go for jobs? You, you, you want to care about them so much, you want to put them on the unemployment line, you want to send them back to their native land because they can't support their families anymore? Uh, what a sick way to talk about this. You've, you've taken your... Your uh, cause, vegetarianism, and you've tried to wrap it around the social ills of the day to suggest that if we get rid of all of these other social ills that I perceive, uh, it would help my cause. And you have to distort what's going on in the country. You have to ignore certain people who would get hurt in the fallout so that you can build up the cause of other people who would also be hurt by the fallout. This appeared in the New York Times. And I mean, the sentence that he actually wrote, if cows were their own country, if cows were a country, and then of course it's climate change. You know what? We're not going to ban the cow or the pig. We're not going to ban the chicken. It's amazing that uh, a bunch of people who uh, favor themselves as environmentalists would annihilate the cow because it farts. Let's make the cow extinct to solve global warming. Yeah, that sounds like a winner. 
I may just have to go smoke my brisket tonight on my rec tech. Um, I, I, you just, it, it, there's, there's no way we're doing this. The fact that the New York Times wants to give this guy a platform to suggest that if you care about racial justice, social justice, you've got to become a vegetarian. Uh, nope. Uh, but hey, there's another reason to not care about social justice. I'll give them that. If cows were a country, I, I'm I'm still dwelling on this. From the, that actual sentence that appeared in the New York Times today, if cows were a country, they would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world uh, behind the columnists from the New York Times. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, yeah, if, if New York Times columnists were a country, they would be the largest BS emitter in the world. <laughs> the, the bovine excrement emitters of the, of the New York Times, they could be their whole country. Wow. You know, and, and I mentioned this. So I, I am increasingly convinced that uh, we are, we're at a point in time where uh, climate change, everyone, oh, we, we all believe in climate change. I, I think climate change is about to disappear as a big issue. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because I actually think, and you know, I've been one of the people who has been saying, you know what, I don't think the models are per se wrong. I think they adjust as new data comes in. And some of the models certainly did start overinflated. You're hearing more and more Republicans out there being deeply skeptical of the initial models, particularly the Imperial College model, uh, which I, I think in hindsight uh, definitely was overstated. But like the IHME modeling, it, it's more optimistic than some, but it's clearly not keeping up with some states like Arizona. It expects Arizona is going to have bodies in the street by June and Arizona's on the decline. What do they know that we don't know? They, they don't. They're just having trouble getting all the data. In fact, there's a great piece at National Review that it's not that the models are wrong, it's that the models model based on the data they know and we're learning so much about uh, the information stream and about the virus that is causing the models to be wrong. What about the climate change models? I mean, we're talking about an epidemiological model and epidemiological models have been relied on for 100 years in various shapes and forms. And they're far simpler than the global ecosystem that has to also take into account solar phenomena and the like. I, I, I don't think that uh, you can look at the models for COVID-19 and, and see just how widely they have been divergent and uh, that we have continued to underperform them by and large. And then look at the global warming models and say, hey, yeah, we're going to shape our entire national policy on these models. I don't think that works, actually. I, I really don't think that it works. And I think as much as people do understand, you know, we're having hotter summers. There is ice melting on the planet. Uh, how much of this is natural? How much of this is man-made? Of course, the environmentalists want you to believe it's all man-made. You know, I actually do tend to agree with, yeah, there is climate change. The, the climate is changing. The climate has always changed. I do actually do genuinely believe that uh, as the climate has changed, we do play some role in, in changing it, but I think it's vastly overstated. Now, why would I say that we play some role? Well, uh, we are the, the largest uh, species. We're, we're the most aggressive species on the planet, and we burn fossil fuels and others don't. So uh, other animals don't. They, they, they fart. You know, the cows fart. Uh, we drive cars. But that being said, uh, that being said, I think that the environmentalists like to overstate 
the impact we have on the environment. Because, I mean, look at the impact a virus is having on the environment. I think they overstate it. And I think they overstate it because they want to paint the nightmare scenarios. It's what I think some of the modelers have done. I think the modelers on COVID-19 have uh, tried to scare people with their models to get government change. And now I think we're seeing the left seizing on these models to scare people for change. And I don't think it's going to work. And I think more and more people are going to be even more skeptical of the models. When you have a guy in the New York Times writing that if cows were a country, they'd be the third largest greenhouse emitter because of their farts. It's really hard to take people like that seriously on this stuff. And I realize he's trying to make a serious point and he thinks he's being serious, but come on. You really believe that annihilating the cow as a species or prohibiting us from eating it is the way to shape the future? No, you know, look at the lockdowns, folks. There are now protests in major cities across America over government lockdowns. And we've only been doing this for about a month and a half to two months. And you're going to tell people that we've got to slaughter all the cows and shut down all the farms and give up meat? How do you think they're going to react to that? It should be clear to the environmentalists that their policy prescriptions to get us to curve our behavior in the real world aren't going to work. And yet they're going to keep on. And you know what? It's not just them who are going to keep on. It's the American media that's going to keep on with them. They're going to continue to badger and cajole you, and it should be abundantly obvious at this point that their proposed policy solutions aren't really workable. Move us all into cities and make us use public transportation in the age of COVID-19 is not going to work, and yet that's what they believe the solution should be. And get rid of the farms, get rid of the the open heartland, get everybody out of the heartland, Uh, get rid of the tractors, get rid of the cars, get rid of the pickup trucks. In post-COVID-19 America, that's not going to work. The policy prescriptions the left has long advocated just no longer are sustainable in the world, and yet they're doubling down on it, except now it's kill all the animals and make us eat plants. And then when we do that, what are they going to say? Well, now we're polluting the water with fertilizer. We've we, we got we to gotta do something else. Now we've got to eat air. Uh, the airitarians, the I guess, is what we're going to become. Just their solutions don't work in the real world. Welcome back. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I have always been skeptical of the AARP. Uh, It has increasingly over the years behaved like it is a left-wing front group. In fact, I I, I think it is. Uh, But also, it, it just seems to be a company that is more interested in making money off seniors than actually helping seniors. And uh, there's a piece at AmericanCommitment.org by Phil Kirpin that delves into some of the stuff that it's doing. And, and it it is deeply frustrating as to what they're doing, particularly price controls and the like, and, and uh, particularly its tie-ins to various insurance companies. And so uh, Phil Kirpin is actually joining me. Phil, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good, Eric. How are you? I'm good. I, so it, I, I'm i glad you wrote this piece, and, and I'm glad I saw it, uh, because the AARP is just an organization that is always, I don't know, it, it's, it's the fact that it, they just, they willy-nilly say, oh, you're a member now, and they try to leverage that. Half the people I know who are AARP members don't like the AARP, except the AARP leverages them for all sorts of cloud in Washington, and I don't know that it's deserved, and yet they're doing it, and now there's this United Health angle here that you've written about and wanted to get you here to discuss it. 
Yeah, you know, I it it's been it's been hard to understand a lot of the uh advocacy that AARP has engaged in over the last several years uh if you think of them as a seniors group because so much of what they advocate is pretty clearly against the interest of seniors and you can go back to the Obamacare debate when they were like the leading cheerleader demanding it even though seniors opposed it something like 14 or 15 to 1 and uh and more recently you know they've been sort of the lead group pushing Nancy Pelosi's price control bill for prescription drugs with the 95% tax on drugs and you think you know how how is it good for seniors if there's a huge tax on their drugs or if you have government price controls that you know you know make it impossible to develop all kinds of new cures that we need and that kind of thing and and I I think the common thread that sort of explains all of their advocacy is um, everything, therefore, is what's good for United Health, and uh, all of their advocacy seems to be perfectly aligned with the large insurance companies, and particularly the largest insurance company, United Healthcare. And I think that's because AARP now gets most of their money from their relationship with United Health, uh, more so than they get from their membership fees. And they get about six, they make about six hundred million dollars a year selling United Health insurance products, and uh, I believe they now function essentially as a marketing, PR, and advocacy arm of uh, you know of a for-profit health insurance company, and uh, they they almost never take policy positions on anything of any significance um, that don't align with United Health, and you know I, I, you know. They, they're a private group. They want to do that. That's fine. But I think people need to understand that that's what's going on. And especially our elected officials in our state capitals and in Washington need to understand that when they see those advocacy messages from ARP, they ought to think about it more as, you know, this is from the marketing arm of a large insurance company rather than this is what seniors want. And uh, if they do that, we'll get better outcomes in a lot of these healthcare debates because they won't be scared off as much uh, by the ARP advocacy messages as they have been. Well, and, and one of those issues is uh, with United Health and, and prescription drugs. Uh, with OptumRx, uh, in fact, my uh, employer uses was using a company that's just been bought by OptumRx and, and changing the uh, the formulary and medicines that you can and cannot get. And United Health seems to benefit by some of the price control things that the Democrats have been advocating. Isn't that right? Yeah, look, uh, they own they they own Optum now, which is you know one of the largest pharmaceutical benefit managers, and that makes the you know there's sort of like a lot of moving parts in these prescription drug pricing debates. And you know, I thought the best idea that President Trump had on prescription drug pricing was when he said in Medicare Part D plans, at least I you know arguably you should do it in private plans as well. But when when President Trump said, look, you know these huge rebates uh, that the pharmaceutical benefit managers are pocketing ought to be passed on to seniors at the point of sale. A lot of people don't know, but a lot of these drugs, uh, the insulins in particular, have like 70 or 80% rebates in many cases. And so when you're paying that very, very high price, and in Part D plans in particular, you typically have 25% uh, copay. And so you know the, the very high list price is really felt in the pocket of seniors in the Part D plans because they're paying 25% of it. And, and uh, the But the way the pharmacy benefit managers networks have developed you know, they supposedly represent the buy side. They represent the pharmacies, and you would think they would go to the manufacturers and negotiate bargain for lower prices. But what they've been doing is they actually say, we want high prices. We don't want low prices. OptumRx actually told uh, the drug manufacturers you can raise prices anytime you want, but if you want to cut prices, you need to give us 
uh, a year and three quarters notice. They, they said we need seven quarters notice if you want to cut prices, but you can raise them any time. And basically they, what they say in these negotiations is give us the highest price you can for the retail price, for the list price that we're going to you know, charge 25% of the point of sale to a senior, and then give us the largest rebate you can, uh, and we'll pocket the rebate. We'll divert it to our own profits. Uh, they have an exemption from the federal anti-kickback statute that allows them to do that, even though this is a government program with tax dollars involved. Uh, Trump wanted to end that rebate and require, uh, end that exemption, require that all rebates are passed on to seniors at the point of sale. This would have been the single biggest uh, reduction in the price that people see at the register of any of the policies that have been proposed, and AARP totally opposed it. Uh, they helped derail it. They're one of the reasons that did not happen. Uh, which, you know, you cannot understand as something that a group would do as a senior's advocacy measure, but you can understand it uh, if they have a very lucrative business relationship with United Health that owns Optum and is making a lot of money on the current rebate arrangement and that exemption. Okay, so l- l- let me let me see if I, I can clarify this for, for some. So I, my, my wife and I are both on, on particular medicines where they are, I mean, hers is like $20,000 a month and, and mine is, is $400 a month, except we're, we've got private insurance and we're in a rebate program. And so I actually only pay $10 for the medicine and my wife gets hers almost for free. Uh, and if we were in, and there's always in, in the little card that we get on the rebate, uh, it, it doesn't apply to Medicare and, and, and Medicaid programs only to private insurance companies. And so I, I'm assuming this is what you're talking about here, those sorts of programs in a Medicare, Medicaid, the, the pharmaceutical companies are getting that rebate. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. And in, in in, typically what's happening, and I think why seniors are so outraged about this sort of the way this whole system is developed is um, the real price that the pharmacy benefit manager is paying is much less than the list price because, you know, let's say they're paying $1,000, but then they're getting a $700 rebate, okay, or whatever it is. But then they're charging the customer, the end consumer, the patient, the senior at the cash register based on the list price, not based on the net price with the rebate. And so you're paying a 25% copay on this mythical list price that's not what they really paid, and they're pocketing the rebate. Wow. So, I mean, is there anything that can be done? What, what pressure should be on the Republicans, particularly to get rid of this, uh, what sounds almost like a con with the rebate program? Uh, Senator Braun has a bill from Indiana that would require rebates to be passed on uh, to customers at the point of sale. Uh, that would be pretty simple fix. I also think this could be done um, without legislation. Um, that was the path that, that President Trump was sort of pursuing that uh, sort of fizzled out last year. Um, but I'd love to see that proposal brought back because, you know, unlike so many of the other proposals that have been put out there to have government step in and sort of, you know, lower drug prices, uh, you know, this one would not affect the incentive for research and development and, the, and, the, and for new cures because the manufacturer doesn't care who's paying. They care how much they're getting. They don't care if it takes the form of, you know, a, a single price or a, you know, high, a low price or a high price with a high rebate. If they're getting enough money to incentivize research and development and the development of new cures, it makes no difference uh, to them. And so I think this is probably, out of all the drug pricing measures that have been proposed, this is the one that could most significantly lower prices in a way that doesn't undercut the incentive to develop new cures, which is the, really the, the prime defect with all the Democratic proposals. You know, They sort of have government arbitrarily lower prices. But if you do that, um, and who's going to spend $2 billion on developing a new cure if you can't get a return on investment? And so well, taking, yeah. the, taking the uh, 
This is one of the big concerns I have in, in these Democratic proposals that are out there, particularly there's one pending in the House right now, I think, that would allow some sort of government independent commission or some such uh, uh, within the FDA or wherever to to set the prices of a private company's medicines. And I, I there there is this issue where people think that we as Americans subsidize the rest of the world's drugs because of what Canada and others yeah. do. But I mean, everybody's, all the research is coming out of the United States for a lot of these drugs, or the research on these drugs. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, the, the Nancy Pelosi bill uh, that passed the House um, basically has the government sit down with drug companies and say, this is what the price of your drug is going to be. And if you don't like it, they call it a negotiation. And if you don't like it, uh, we're going to impose a 95% tax on all of your gross sales of that product for the last year. Not even your profits, your gross sales. And so basically, you take our price or we tax you into oblivion out of business so as government set the prices. Um, the rest of the world is getting a free ride on us because they have government price controls almost everywhere. Uh, and we certainly should try to break those price controls through trade negotiations and get other countries to pay more. If we did that, uh, one of two things would happen, probably a little bit of each. Uh, we would either pay a little bit less um, because the, uh, the cost of R&D would be spread globally, uh, or we would get a lot more drugs because there would be more of an incentive to, to develop drugs, more of a return on investment uh, from having global market-based returns. We'd probably get a little of each. We'd get slightly lower prices in the U.S. and a lot more new drugs developed. Uh, if other countries loosen their price controls. But the fact that other countries have these policies doesn't mean we should copy them, because if we do, you know, if every country in the world has price controls and it costs $2 billion to develop a new drug and you can't earn a return on that investment anywhere, then there's no free riding because there's no no moving vehicle to ride on for anyone. So, you know, right. it's important that we try to stop the foreign free riding, but uh, if we should not adopt sort of it, if you can't beat them, join them stance of just adopting our own price controls domestically, because that would totally undercut uh, the incentive for R&D and the development of new cures and uh, you know the massive amount of work that's going on right now uh, you know, on this particular pandemic and future ones and all the other diseases and everything else. So you, you don't want to do that. You know, the democratic approach is deeply flawed uh, for that reason. But that said, um, you know, our current drug pricing system has some major, major flaws, uh, like the one we were just talking about. And uh, if we could have a, you know, more more market-oriented system, uh, then we could make a lot of progress, I think, to have lower prices and still have those strong incentives in place. And one other thing I want to mention on the trade front is, as hard as it sounds to convince other countries to loosen their price controls and let the price of drugs rise, we actually did convince Canada and Mexico to let biotech drugs get more expensive uh, in the USMCA. Um, and Nancy Pelosi insisted that we take it out. And we did take it out. That was one of her must-have <laughs> asks, and the Trump administration conceded on it. And so we actually did the almost impossible, convinced other countries to pay more for prescription drugs, which would allow us to either pay a little less, as I said, or to incentivize more drugs to be developed. It was a very good. It was. It wasn't. Didn't. It wasn't perfect. Didn't totally under. But for biotech drugs, we convinced them to extend the period of data exclusivity, which basically means they would have paid more for those drugs for a longer period of time in Canada and Mexico. And uh, Pelosi said, "Absolutely not. I'm against drug companies getting money from anywhere, even if it's from other countries that have been getting a free ride." And she made them take it out. Good grief! Wow. Well, this is all very informative. I mean, is there any way to, to undermine the AARP's credibility on this stuff? It just seems like they, they've been around forever and no one's ever really mounted a, an effective challenge to what they try to do. 
Well, we're trying, and uh, we'll see if we're more effective uh, than others have been. But if you go to AmericanCommitment.org, we've got a new uh, Commitment to Seniors project that's linked right on the front that has all the facts and the information about AARP. And we have a uh, we have a really good research paper that we had Chris Jacobs, the former Demint staffer, uh, write yeah. for us. He now has his company, Juniper Research. And uh, he completed it like two months ago, and we were about to release it when the pandemic hit. And then I said, let's wait until we have a better news cycle. And we still haven't released it because <laughs> it's been two months. And so I, I, we are going to do it, release it soon. Uh, it's, it's very compelling and uh, has a tremendous amount of research uh, that – shows you know sort of the money and the alignment of interests with ARP and good United Health. Well, keep up the good work. Look, I appreciate you stopping by to talk about this. It, it really informative and, and the more exposure we get on this issue, the better. All right. Thanks for having me, Eric. Thanks very much. Phil Kirpin, he is the president of American Commitment. Uh, and, you know, it really is. I just highly skeptical of organizations like the AARP. And, and as, as Phil notes, and in this research paper from Chris Jacobs, the AARP has a remarkable for 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 an organization that claims to help seniors. It remarkably aligns itself with United Healthcare on virtually every issue, even when it is obvious that seniors won't benefit, but the insurance company does. And there, I just I got a problem with that truth in advertising, and they seem to be a cover for some really bad policies out there. There was an active shooter situation at uh, in Corpus Christi, Naval Air Station, Corpus Christi. The shooter has been neutralized. Uh, all gates to Naval Air Station, Corpus Christi, remain closed. First responders are on the scene. This comes on the heels of a shooting where three people were killed in Arizona. Uh, it, it, it sounds like shootings can, can get through the COVID-19 media quarantine of other news and very few other things can uh i just i i've got this sneaking suspicion we're going to wake up in a couple of in a month or so the virus will have receded and we're going to find out all sorts of news happened uh that the media never covered and uh it's just i i'm i'm intrigued and now we're saying that the the, uh, international olympic committee today is starting to say that if Japan can't get a handle on the virus. They're going to scrap the Olympics. You know, they moved the Olympics to 2021 in the Summer Olympics. Or is it Summer Olympics? Yeah, no, 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 Winter Olympics. And and they may scrap that uh, in 2021, which would be unfortunate given the investment uh, Japan has made in in the Olympics. Uh, We'll see. We'll see. Golf is making a comeback in the United States. Apparently millennials, you know, millennials get blamed for this stuff. And increasingly, you know, a, a millennial, the phraseology on millennials, I think is, is has gotten very bad because a lot of people use the word millennial to refer to anyone younger than them. And that's not really true. Uh, a millennial typically is, is roughly 21 or so now, 21 uh, to late 30s, somewhere in that range. And it's Gen Z that that's uh, younger than 21. Like my kids are, I'm Gen X, my kids are Gen Z. Uh, you, you tend to hop a generation, the, the generation between us are the millennials. Uh, Philip, who works for me, is a millennial. Uh, and um, he's like one of the decent ones. <laughs> No, seriously, seriously. Um, yeah, but yeah, so I'm reading all these stories that that you know, Gen Gen uh, millennials have ended golf and American cheese, and now they're making a rebound. And it's really not necessarily them. The the younger end of them and the blending of of the Gen Z. This story 
Uh, few generations have been as choosy as millennials with their brand and product preferences or with such wide effect. In recent years, the group has been blamed for killing a variety of items. Uh, they've shied away from American cheese because it's too processed or possibly too orange. They've stopped using napkins because paper towels do just fine. Um, my kid doesn't even use paper towel, just uses clothes. Now, and golf was fine for older parents, but not hip enough to retain interest with younger generations. Oh, whatever. But now they're on the rebound. Uh, if marketers pay attention now and adjust supplies accordingly, they could continue to win in these areas. Turns out that uh, people are back to pay, playing golf and buying napkins and American cheese and cereal. Uh, millennials have seen an uptick in cereal and in beer. Uh, beer is now, but you know, we didn't have COVID-19 before all these companies started making that, that, that garbage seltzer stuff, but beer is, is making a rebound. Online beer sales are up 100% and it's regular beer. You know, Coors Light is, is going to start giving away beer to people. They're running a social media ad campaign. Uh, you tweet at them, uh, as to why you think someone needs a beer and they will send them beer. Uh, someone suggest me. Um, in any event, um, it, it is remarkable that these things are making it. it one millennial says that uh, it turns out that when you're in quarantine and you got a lot going on at your house, cereal is easier to prepare than scrambled eggs. Okay. And also more yummy than uh, avocado toast every day. Okay. And golf is making a rebound because there's no better place to socially distance than on a golf course. I, I, I agree with that. I have not done a good job of of going to hit golf balls. I, I'm not a member of a golf club, and I need to be one because uh, my son and I both like to hit golf balls, and we haven't done it in a while. There's one near me about 10 minutes from where I live, and I keep thinking I need to go over there and join. And they've got like a, a pool and a, and a restaurant and stuff too. And I just keep thinking I need to do it, and I have never gotten around to doing it. Uh, just to go to the driving range and hit golf balls or, or get in a golf cart or, or walk a course. You're, you're socially distanced from everybody else. The and you're not going to have more than four people playing together. So you're, you're not going to have a large crowd. Golf is the perfect thing to do when you need to socially distance. And the millennials and the Gen Z, they're starting to figure it out. It's actually a great pastime. And you can go out there in the afternoon and day drink while you hit golf balls too. There's nothing wrong with that on the golf course either, according to some. I maybe wouldn't know that. But nonetheless... At least we're seeing a golf resurgence among millennials. That's a good thing. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show, believe it or not, across the state of Georgia and the nation now. And the phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I'm glad to have you with me. Uh, I will not be here tomorrow. Finally, I can have a guest host and take a day off. I, I will, you know, truth be honest, uh, Truth be told, I wanted to take uh, tomorrow and Monday off and have a, a longer four-day weekend, and now I have been dragged into something tomorrow, and I can't tell you about it, uh, and I'll tell you all about it next week, I guess, but um, I uh, now have to work tomorrow but I can't work on radio tomorrow given the logistics of the situation. So uh, Chris Burns will finally be back filling in for me. And I am, I'm glad to have him back. Um, my financial advisor uh, and a friend and a good radio guy uh, and host in and of himself, he'll be here uh, for now though. Is, if you want to talk to me on the radio, now's your chance until after Memorial day, eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, Eric, eight, seven, seven, nine, seven, three, seven, four, two, five. Uh, Carl Quint uh, Quintanilla at uh, CNBC has a very interesting thread up about JP Morgan. 
Uh, Kolonovic is one of their uh, people at J.P. Morgan. I don't know him. A friend of mine who is a hedge fund guy in New York actually says this is the one guy he pays attention to. Uh, And let me read you his thread here. This is interesting. J.P. Morgan has a devastating piece arguing that infection rates have declined, not increased, in states where lockdowns have ended, even after allowing for an appropriate measurement lag. Same goes for various countries, adds J.P. Morgan. This means that the pandemic and COVID-19 likely have its own dynamics unrelated to often inconsistent lockdown measures that were being implemented. In the absence of a conclusive data, these lockdowns were justified, but millions of lives were being destroyed with little consideration that lockdowns might not cause, might not only cause economic devastation, but potentially more deaths than the virus itself. Uh, J.P. Morgan continues, uh, demagogues will be tempted to use COVID-19 to blame immigrants, people of different race, or use the pandemic as a pretext to intensify geopolitical tensions. We will closely monitor how these risks evolve, but at this point, uh, see them as potential tail risks. The initial response of the Trump administration was to downplay the risk of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, since then, the simplistic thesis changed significantly. The administration shifted to forecasting a larger negative impact, setting the stage for them to outperform, shifting blame to China, the World Health Organization, and shifting the blame for economic pain to large blue states that are perceived to be slowing down the reopening of the economy. Indeed, allowed economic activity across the country is now largely following partisan lines. Uh, Colin Novonik, uh, Carl Quintanilla at CNBC says, J.P. Morgan's Kolonovic came close to calling the peak back on April 6th. Uh, seem to the S&P has been up 20% since then. In fact, you know, the, the markets have continued by and large to do well. Uh, now, today, not a good day. The Dow is down um, 117 points, NASDAQ down 89.9, and S&P 500 down 22.9 points as of right now, 11, 10 a.m. on Thursday. Uh, but uh, the Dow is back to 24,458, uh, which is a, a several thousand point increase from where it had fallen just a month ago. So things do appear to be headed in the right direction in this country. And increasingly so, you've got the the guys, uh, Kolonovic, a, a friend of mine who, again, he's in the hedge fund business. I sent this to him last night and said, have you seen this? What do you know about this guy? And he says, this guy, J.P. Morgan, is one of the few reasonable voices out there that he has been uh, very, very intrigued by and has paid attention to that he seems to have been right uh, consistently on what's going on. So here you have this guy who's looked at the data and says, you know what, even after the lockdowns, stuff seems to be going well. Well, yes, but there is this story in the Washington Post. Experts warn... Experts warn of a second wave in the South. Coronavirus hotspots erupt. Dallas, Houston, Southeast Florida's Gold Coast, the entire state of Alabama, and several other places in the South that have been rapidly reopening their economies are in danger of a second wave of coronavirus infections over the next four weeks. According to a research team that uses cell phone data to track social mobility and forecast the trajectory of the pandemic, the model developed by Policy Lab 
at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, an updated Wednesday with new data, suggests that most communities in the United States should be able to avoid a second spike in the near term if residents are careful to maintain social distancing even as businesses open up and restrictions are eased. But the risk for resurgence is high in some parts of the country, especially in places where cases are already rising fast, including Crawford, Iowa, Colfax, Nebraska, Texas, Oklahoma. Texas, Oklahoma is actually a um, city in Oklahoma and the city of Richmond. Since May 3rd, Crawford County's caseload has risen 750%, and Colfax County has increased 1,390%, according to state data compiled by the Washington Post. That's Iowa and Nebraska. There's an anxious moment for the nation as people emerge from the shutdowns. The preliminary signs, however, that hot spots, new clusters of coronavirus spread, could soon flare across parts of the South and the Midwest. Researchers at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center said last week that cases in the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area could spike this summer with a tripling of daily active cases of COVID-19, the disease the novel coronavirus causes, if there's significant easing of mitigation efforts. And Policy Lab projects that next month, Harris County, which includes Houston, will go from a couple hundred cases a day to more than 2,000. I, so I, I've, I've got a question on this. We've gone back and forth with our experts. And I don't actually mean this disparaging. I actually legitimately have a question I don't know the answer to. We had that entire, remember the press conference of the White House where the president wanted people to swallow UV bulbs or inject themselves with Clorox? At least that's the way the media portrayed it. He didn't really, but that's the way the media portrayed it. Whatever happened to that, I mean, not what the president said, but what the the doctor before him said, that summer months will be good because it will slow the virus spread. We're talking about Houston and Dallas, Texas, not exactly cool places. The National Weather Service projects that in the next 60 days, we're going to have record high heat in this country, particularly from Texas to the East Coast. So how can they how can they say that? Um, I, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly, and, and I don't mean to, to, to be a model truther here because I think, by and large, the models have helped shape our policy in ways that needed to be. We were flying blind. The models helped. They were never intended to be right, but I think maybe they were more wrong in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases more wrong than otherwise. But if if we know, and even here, Dr. Fauci said Wednesday he has no doubt there will be new waves of cases. The virus is not going to disappear, he said to in an interview with Washington Post. It's a highly transmissible virus at any given time at some place or another. As long as that's the case, there's a risk of resurgence. But even Dr. Fauci has said it would be August, September, when the country starts cooling down again, that we would see the spike. During the summer, we shouldn't see the spike. And now all these experts are coming and say, oh, all these hot places where the, all the experts say the virus isn't going to spread in the summer, they're going to see a flare-up in the summer. How is that possible? Now, I'm no expert. Maybe there's a rational explanation for this. But I was clearly told, and you were clearly told, that when the place heats up this summer, uh, that it's going to dramatically slow the spread of the virus. And now they're saying, oh, we're going to have massive spikes in all of these super hot places during the summer. 
Now, I get the virus spreads inside, but, you know, again, this goes back to DeSantis opening the beaches in Florida. They can't show cases of this virus spreading outside. And now the CDC, did y'all hear about this? The CDC late yesterday came out and said the newest data shows that the virus does not actually spread on surfaces very easy. It is actually harder to pick up the virus from a surface than what we originally thought. Hmm. What on earth is actually going on? Now, I I, want to be real clear with some of you. Not all of you. Some of you, I think. Most of you get this, but some of you don't. We are flying blind in large part because the virus is so new. It is May. May 21st, to be precise. January, February, March, April, May, five months ago, five months ago today, the virus showed up in the United States, a virus for which China largely lied about. We we don't have the data from China. The, The data we do have from China was misleading. So really, we've got five months worth of data on this virus globally. There is still a lot about the virus we don't know. In just the last couple of weeks, we've gone back and forth as as, as the scientific, I shouldn't say we, the scientific community has gone back and forth on uh, the rate of the virus mutations. Is it mutating or is it not? If it's mutating, is it going to be seasonal? Are we going to have to keep modifying uh, injections and vaccines? Can we get a vaccine or not? Some scientists were originally saying we wouldn't be able to come up with a vaccine because it was coronavirus. Now they're saying we might get a vaccine. When will we get the vaccine? The deadline has shifted. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? About the only thing we know for certain is that it it spreads in gatherings of people through the water vapor of someone's breath, through you inhaling that water vapor, or if they sneeze or cough, inhaling those particles, or you get it on your hands and you touch your face and it gets in through your eyes or your nose or your mouth. So wash your hands regularly and wear a face mask seem to be the most sustainable advice and that wear a face mask for the longest time, the CDC and who were saying, World Health Organization were saying, nope, one, the doctors and nurses need that equipment more than you, and two, healthy people don't need to worry. And now they're saying, let everybody wear a mask. In fact, the countries that have most eradicated the virus are the ones that have imposed on the public demands to wear masks. There's still so much about all of this we just don't know. It's not that the models were willfully wrong. No model is ever right. They were processing data. You know why some of the initial models were so far off? Because of patient 31 in South Korea. Remember patient 31? We've talked about her before. That woman is presumed to have infected 2,000 people. When you put into the model that one person can infect 2,000 people, guess what? the model loses its bowels. It goes nuts. You readjust it, the modeling comes back down. I've talked to a lot of good epidemiologists in the last couple weeks, and they always tell me, the purpose of the modeling isn't to tell you what's going to happen. The purpose of the model is to paint the worst-case scenario so that you have a guide to avoid the worst-case scenario. But I have a hard time now at this point saying that the models that have sustained us and guided public health for the last several months, if they're not taking into account the new data that shows that hot places are going to do better, because it, it's certainly the case along the, the equator, 
the hot, muggy, humid countries are doing better. Places like Singapore that have seen a second wave, a lot of us, myself included, looked at that and said, oh, gosh, does this mean that this is going to this is going to be a problem? Turns out that it was migrant communities uh, in communal housing who were spreading the virus, not in the general public. South Korea, Singapore locked down a second time and then came out of it when they realized what was going on. The, there's so much we don't know about the virus, but it seems one of the things we do know is that summers are going to be good for areas of the South. And part of me wonders, given the media behavior of the last couple of weeks, are they amplifying a lot of these see, I told you so stories because they're trying to, they hold Southern states in contempt. Those are Trump voters. Those Hicks and Rubes are anti-science. You know, they believe in imaginary sky God. They don't believe in, in the God of science. You can see them doing it. It's going to just make a whole lot of people skeptical as the media keeps rushing these stories out. You know, there's another bit of data that just doesn't seem to be in the equation when it comes to the virus, and that is that that polling shows 87% of Americans are worried about a spike in cases uh, when people start venturing out. Now, that suggests to me that uh, people's behavior is going to be restrained in such a way that people will be able to go out and about and will exercise caution and will wear masks. I, I, I know it with me, it goes back and forth uh, on when I go to, to the grocery store and, and other places, just how many people are wearing masks. Some days uh, I'm in the majority of people wearing masks. Some days I'm in the minority. There are some days I go into the grocery store. In fact, I got, I got a, a glare from someone who's a listener uh, in Macon the other day for going in and I didn't have a mask on and the guy did. And he finally came up to me and he asked, uh, you've been telling people already to wear a mask. Why aren't you wearing a mask? I was like, cause you and I are the only people in here. Um, <laughs> there's no reason for me. And you're wearing a mask. I mean, literally listen, y'all, if it is, if it's closing time and there are five people in the grocery store, I'm not going to fiddle with my mask running in. Everybody else who works there is in a mask. I, I will be okay. But you don't, you know, I, I find that the people who say uh, you can't make me wear a mask because it's a violation of my liberty, we, we got to have liberty. I, I'm not wearing no mask because it lipped my freedom. The people who are worse than that are the people who want to report everyone for not wearing a mask. I, I saw this on social media yesterday. Uh, someone was literally taking pictures of someone in a store not wearing face masks and shaming them online. It's like you're worse than the people who, who think that it's a violation of my civil liberties to wear a mask. Listen, I'm an advocate of the masks right now. There's a virus spreading. We don't have a cure for it. We don't have a vaccine for it. You're, you're just being a good, responsible neighbor. But seriously, you're going to you're going to actually take pictures of people and try to shame them on social media because they're not wearing a mask. It makes me want to take my mask off. And go stand by the person and talk to them. I just it, 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 it just everybody just needs to leave everybody else alone, really. I do think that people need to be good neighbors and responsible citizens in their community and help stop the spread of the virus. And that means limiting your contact with the outside world, washing your hands and wearing a mask if you need to wear a mask. Uh, Frankly, I've got to go to a meeting tomorrow in Atlanta and I'll be going to a restaurant. I actually called the restaurant to make sure it would be open. They're insisting on reservations. I got a reservation. The bar is open. I'm going to have a beer. I'm going to have uh, Philly cheesesteak egg rolls. This restaurant has Philly cheesesteak. They they take Philly cheesesteak and they wrap them in egg rolls, and it's fantastic. Doing that, it's going to be glorious. 
I'm going to enjoy it. Going with a friend. We're going to a meeting and then we're going to go do that. And it's going to be wonderful. And we're just going to enjoy the evening out. And you know what? We'll have masks with us. And if we're in crowds, we'll wear masks. In in one of the meetings, we, we may have to wear a mask. But I'm not going to shame people or point at people and criticize people who aren't doing it. You know, I, I'm still finding in, in some respects as on next door, you know, next door, next door is like Facebook for your neighborhood. There are still people who can't find masks uh, and they're having to go places to try to get masks or they're trying to get them online. And some people are having uh, difficulty getting them. And I understand that and particularly, you know, we're, we're talking about this mask shaming. What if you're poor and you can't afford a mask and your grocery store is not providing them? Are you supposed to starve? Because I'm seeing this as well. It's essentially poverty shaming. You know, I read that article earlier that that we've all got to become vegetarian for the working poor because we're making these working poor people work in the meat facilities. You know where the working poor people are going are to work if the meat facilities close? They're going to work on the farm picking your vegetables. Just it's it's silly. There's a lot of silly stuff going on up there. Okay. When we come back, there's been another data screw up with the Department of Public Health. And we should talk about that. And there's actual conspiracy mongering going on out there right now because of all of it. Uh, But before we get there, I want to remind you guys, this hour is sponsored by First Liberty Building and Loan in Noonan, Georgia. And if you are a small business that needs access to the payroll protection program to keep your employees on the payroll without them having to come to work so that you can keep everyone at home still, the payroll protection program is for you. And you can apply by going to firstlibertyga.com. FirstLibertyGA.com is the website for First Liberty Building and Loan. And they will get you into the program, or at least they'll try. They can't guarantee it. No one can. But Marco Rubio is out today pointing out we still got money in the program. Mark Cuban is actually out noting there's still money in the program. And he's wondering, uh, did they just overfund it the second time because they underfunded it the first time? Or are people not applying for it because they got discouraged? Are people being denied? Uh, If you want to have access to it, though, if you need PPP for your business, uh, let me recommend First Liberty Building and Loan. Now, if you're an individual, they can't help you. But they've been helping businesses since 1993. And they can help your business get into the payroll protection program. All you got to, you don't even have to call them. You don't have to show up at their office. All you do is go to firstlibertyga.com. There is an apply now button. You click the apply now button for PPP, fill out the application, get your payroll in order to prove your payroll, and they will do their best to get you into the program. Again, they can't guarantee it, but they'll try. Go to firstlibertyga.com. Hello there, it is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show, the phone number if you want to call in, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Chris Burns, in for me tomorrow, and then we got off Memorial Day, thank goodness. Um, Okay, okay, okay. Um, I need to talk about the data. There's another screw-up with the Department of Public Health. Uh, and now Kathleen Toomey says it's not really an error. It's the way the data was collected. Let me read you this from the AJC. After weeks of criticism for not being transparent with data about the coronavirus, state officials on Wednesday acknowledged that a test type that does not measure active cases inflated published test counts by 57,000 or roughly 14% of the total tests to date. 
For weeks now, the Department of Public Health has included antibody tests, which can detect if someone once had the coronavirus with diagnostic tests that measure active infections in its total tally of about 403,000. Experts say it's misleading uh, because it distorts the state's capacity to track current infections. The department's inclusion of antibody tests and testing counts first reported by the Ledger Inquirer out of Columbus surprised Dr. Kathleen Toomey and prompted the governor's office to request the department remove antibody tests from the state's total. Toomey told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution she was unaware so many antibody tests were being included. It's not really an error. It's the way it was collected. I don't fully appreciate how, I didn't fully appreciate how many antibody tests have been done. The testing admission is the latest in a series of missteps. Uh, so here's the problem is the state is collecting the data. And let me give you the data right now for Georgia. Uh, in Georgia, there are 404,207 total tests done, 40,157 positive COVID-19 cases, 1,632 ICU admissions, 7,194 hospitalizations, and 1,724 people have died from COVID-19. Now, those are cumulative numbers. There are not, for example, 7,194 people in the hospital right now. In fact, there are less than 1,000 people in the hospital right now, uh, and this is all good. But the antibody test doesn't actually show us who currently has the virus. It shows us people who probably had the virus in the past. And that becomes a little problematic because it skews the information. It makes it look like, number one, there were more cases, and number two, more tests were done for positive COVID-19 cases. And this is the third time there's been an error problem with the Department of Public Health. Uh, the second time was the one that has started all sorts of left-wing conspiracy theories. There were 231 additional positive cases and then those got backed out. And the left thinks it's a conspiracy theory, actually. It was a data entry error. It was people who were already in there and they were used to make sure the antibody tests are working. They tested positive for COVID-19 a second time because it was an antibody test and everyone knew they already had it. And those numbers got put in and they had to be backed out because it was an error. And the left has decided, oh, they're rigging the numbers in Georgia. They're not rigging the numbers in Georgia. There are data errors. Every state has them. New York has had them too, by the way. You don't see the left uh, claiming conspiracy theories about the data errors in New York. But Florida, Georgia, Texas, any state that has reopened and is conservative, man. And, you know, by the way, CNN and The Washington Post and others have a series of stories out today attacking the Florida situation. It's almost like it's coordinated. Hmm. I mean, it really is almost like uh, the national media is coordinating these hits on the states that are daring to open. Part of me thinks it's because they're Republicans who are opening and part of me thinks that it's because they're jealous that their state's not reopening. And I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm kind of impressed with the media's willingness to continue to build. Because, you know, I, I got to say, silly me, some of these reporters I thought were actually interested in telling the truth. And it turns out they just didn't like it when, when conservatives were lying about the virus. They're perfectly happy for progressives to lie about the virus. There have been some great reporters out there, uh, and and they deserve credit. I think Jake Tapper continues to be among the best, and I know that that he's persona non grata among conservatives these days because he's dared to get upset with the president. Oh, my goodness. Who hasn't got upset with the president, really? Even, even people I know who are diehard Trump supporters get occasionally annoyed with the president. Jake Tapper's allowed to, just like the rest of us.
He's a journalist. Yeah, so? I think he does a fair job. Listen, I, I don't understand why. Well, no, actually, I do. I know exactly what's going on. There are journalists out there. Look, I don't always agree with Jake Tapper. I don't agree with his take on stuff. And I think if he didn't do commentary on the Sunday show, it would probably be better. But we know where he leans. And I think overwhelmingly he understands that his worldview may not be yours and mine. And he tries to compensate for it and, and winds up being a pretty fair guy. Uh, and he calls like his. Uh, listen, I remember when the left hated Jake Tapper's guts because he dared question the Obama administration in ways they thought were inappropriate. Now he's doing it to Donald Trump, and it's the the very same people who were praising him for his bravery under fire with Obama are now attacking him. Saying, yeah, you're just nothing but a liberal hack. I think we should be praising and commending the people in the media who have tried to play it straight between Obama and the Trump situation. There are just a, a great many people out there who don't want to do that. But then there are others in the media, a lot of them at newspapers, by the way, who seem to want to fact check all the conservative nonsense when the virus started, and they don't want to do the same on the left. They don't want to call out their own side. And silly me just thought they did. And, and part of the reason, part of the reason they don't want to call out their own side is because they are morally invested at this point in beating Trump. And so they're okay with lies on the left festering if they can hurt the president. And I, I think we do need to be mindful of that. I, I think we do. Um, there are errors in the data, and the data needs to be fixed. Um, but there are other problems out there as well. You know, let, let me talk about another problem out there. The the, the, the virus is... is um, is is giving lie to and I, I want to read let me let me find this piece uh, I got it right here uh, th this is fascinating to me so I am I am convinced and I'm glad to see I found this guy and he just he he believes everything I believe so he must be right <laughs> no seriously seriously um I what what I I really do believe is that zero interest rates are not good for the economy. And the reason is because water, money like water, wants to flow. And money, in fact, let me read this guy's piece because he, he he's he's in in the in this realm of things and in finance, and so he can articulate it better than me. And he has a, a fancy name for it, but there's there's a funny piece. Uh, let me see where is this? I got to find the the particular click here on. Um, why he thinks part of the problem is, and it's zero interest rates. Zero interest rates are a problem for the economy overall. Essentially, money is like a living organism. He calls it ZERP, zero interest rate policy. ZERP is zero interest rate policy. I will assume most of uh, the readers here are kind of familiar with the term, but to clarify, it's when a nation's central bank pushes nominal interest rates to zero using monetary policy. There are a million complexities to how it's executed, and nowadays rates can even go negative, NERP, instead of ZERP. Here's why it's a bad thing. Maybe it's because I was an eco this is him writing. Maybe it's because I was an e economics major or a currency trader, but I think of money as a living thing, not as a sentient, conscious being, but more like one of those prehistoric single-celled organisms, or maybe sperm swimming towards an egg. Just millions and trillions of tiny little living 
things driven solely on biology towards some unforeseen source of nourishment, some instinctual goal. Money is always swimming towards yield. Millions of investment professionals are taking tens of millions of actions every day to drive capital to its sustenance. The entire global capitalist economy rests on this constant flow. So what happens when you lower interest rates to zero? All those millions of little dollar organisms have to change course. They've got to find a new source of life. All investment decisions are, in theory, an evaluation of risk versus reward. The U.S. Treasury three-month bill is often thought of as a risk-free rate of return or the yield you deserve for effectively assuming zero risk. It's called zero risk because we're assuming the U.S. government will not default on their debt in the next three months. For reference, this currently gives you 0.71% yield. It was 1.25% yield when I started writing this on Monday. There's your starting point. The more risk you take, the more yield you get. If we're just looking at U.S. Treasuries, the longer the maturity, the more more yield you should get because that's more time the U.S. government could default. Then you start looking at investment-grade corporate debt like bonds issued by Apple. It's a little bit riskier than the U.S. government, so you get a tiny bit more return. Then you move out to high-risk, high-yield corporate debt, which is a little bit riskier. Then you're moving out the curve. Getting to hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, real estate, and on and on. For each additional increase in risk you take, you get a little bit more yield. The thing is, money has expectations. At an individual level, most of us have become accustomed to bank savings accounts effectively returning zero. That wasn't enough for us, though. Our money felt antsy, so it found index funds and other passive funds to once again find a bit of risk. They are certainly riskier than bank savings accounts, but no one's ever really lost money in a wealth front account. Money swims towards yield. That same tiny behavioral shift takes place at every level of the risk curve, from your savings account to the trillions of dollars managed by large pension funds. And so as you get zero interest rate yield, it brings down yields. And so the money swims further and further out to find more. Well, this gets us to where I want to go. This is a bizarre story. Uh, this guy, Ron John Roy, writes this about DoorDash and pizza arbitrage. In March of 2019, a good friend who owns a few pizza restaurants messaged me. For over a decade, he resisted adding delivery as an option at his restaurants. He felt it would detract from focusing on the dine-in experience and result in trying to compete with Domino's. He was a gourmet pizza maker, and so you had to come to his restaurant to eat his gourmet pizzas. But he suddenly started getting customers calling in with complaints about their deliveries. Customers called in saying their pizza was delivered cold or the wrong pizza was delivered and they wanted a new pizza, and none of his restaurants delivered. He realized that a delivery option had mysteriously appeared on the company's Google listing. The delivery option was created by DoorDash. To confirm, he had never spoken with anyone from DoorDash, and after years of resisting the siren song of delivery revenue, certainly did not want to be listed. But words, order delivery, were right there, prominently on the Google snippet. He messaged asking me if I knew anything about DoorDash, and oh boy, did I get SoftBank triggered. I had just read about their $400 million Series F, and it was among the WeWorkian class of companies that, for me, represents everything wrong with startup evolution. Raise a ton of money, lose a ton of money, and just obliterate the basic economics of an industry. DoorDash was causing him real problems. The most common was DoorDash delivery drivers didn't have the proper bags for pizza, so inevitably the pizza would arrive cold. And then he brought up another problem. The prices were off. He was so frustrated. Customers were seeing incorrectly low prices. A pizza that he charged $24 for was listed as 16 by DoorDash. 
At first, he thought, I wondered if DoorDash is artificially lowering prices for customer acquisition purposes. And then I thought, wait a second. Arbitrage. If someone could pay DoorDash $16 a pizza and DoorDash would pay his restaurant $24 a pizza, he could order the pizzas himself via DoorDash all day long and you'd net $8 in profit. And long story short, the guy ultimately winds up doing this and, and makes thousands of dollars by ordering his own pizzas from DoorDash. And ultimately gets to the point where, uh, because of the cost at the time, with flour and, and stuff that he already had in stock, he just ordered sauceless, cheeseless pizzas. He ordered crust. And he was able to make thousands of dollars by going through DoorDash. And now it does turn out DoorDash was artificially lowering the prices and then showed up at his restaurant one day and said, hey, we got data that shows all these people are ordering your pizzas for delivery through us. You should allow us to do this. And then, of course, they were going to tack on fees to his restaurant. So his restaurant would have to rent equipment from DoorDash to process the orders. DoorDash would then add a delivery fee to the customers and then try to pay the drivers. And it turns out DoorDash is doing this. And did you know DoorDash is not making a profit? Uber is not making a profit. Uber Eats is not making a profit. Grubhub is not making a profit. DoorDash and Grubhub, or no, Uber Eats and Grubhub are merging. Uber Eats is Uber's most profitable division. Uber Eats lost $461 million in the fourth quarter of 2019 off a revenue of $734 million. And they're destroying the restaurant industry in the process, and they're destroying the delivery economics in the process. And this is a problem that we're going to have to deal with, and coronavirus is exacerbating it. A lot of companies that should go bankrupt right now are not going bankrupt because the government's bailing them out when they could have just collapsed on their own. And now you've got these zombie companies holding a lot of debt that are continuing to go out there, and they employ a ton of people. And so the government is sustaining a bunch of companies that should not be in existence right now who, because they are employing a ton of people. Those people can't go get other jobs. This is all going to cause us calamity down the road. And then you label on, you, you layer on top of that these SoftBank fund. SoftBank is a foreign venture capital firm that is pouring money into technology startups. DoorDash really isn't a technology startup. It's a delivery service, but they've packaged themselves as a technology startup. And what they're doing is they're wiping out existing industries. They're wiping out existing industries and then not able to sustain themselves. And ultimately, they've wrecked an industry and then they go out of business. And I, I feel like Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, some of these guys, Republicans in the Senate have been thinking about this stuff. Surely they've got some novel stuff. I really need to sit down and talk to them about that because because this is one of the issues we're going to be dealing with as a country going forward. The government during the coronavirus epidemic has propped up, sustained, and subsidized a number of companies that have left to their own devices in a good economy would have gone out of business. And now we're in a terrible economy. The government's sustaining them. They're not going to go out of business, and they're going to continue on as near zombie shells of their former selves. You know, Pier 1's closing down all of their stores. They're not taking the bailout. There are a lot of financial institutions that should be doing the same, and they're not. And we're going to have another financial crisis in the next decade because of it. Can I just tell you one of my favorite things these days to observe is the left justifying voting for Joe Biden uh, in light of the Tara Reid stuff. I mean, yesterday you had the woman in the New York Times saying, you know, believe all women really didn't mean that. And all the people saying that it did are liars. And I Googled and, and found people on the right using the believe all women hashtag. Never mind that people on the left had started it. Well, today we've got this one from The Nation. We should take women's accusations seriously, but Tara Reid's fall short. 
And let me read you the subtitle. I would vote for Joe Biden even if I believed Reed's account. Fortunately, I don't have to sacrifice morality to political necessity because I've decided it doesn't. She's not telling the truth. I mean, they don't leave that last part. But let me let me read you the the opening to this. That was your subtitle. Now, here's the opening paragraph. I would vote for Joe Biden if he boiled babies and ate them. That's how this person begins her defense of Joe Biden. He wasn't my candidate. But taking back the White House is that important. Four more years of Trump will replace what remains of our democracy with unchecked rule by kleptocrats, fascists, religious fanatics, gun nuts, and know-nothings. The environment, education, public health, the rights of voters, workers, immigrants, people of color, and yes, women, forget them. And not just for the next four years, a Trump victory will lock down the courts for decades. I cannot believe that a rational person can grasp the disaster that is Donald Trump and withhold their support from Biden because of Tara Reid. And then goes on to say, oh, but it didn't really happen. I don't believe her. But she believed Christine Blasey Ford. It really is just fascinating to me to watch them try to justify this. It really is. You know, you might as well bring Matt and Lauer back at this point. Matt Lauer is out trying to defend himself now, uh, trying to say in, in light of the Ben Smith piece in the New York Times about uh, Roland Farrow, uh, that uh, you know Roland Farrow screwed it all up, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, um, well, well, Matt Lauer wants to come back. And he says that Ronan Farrow got so much wrong. They should let him come back. Listen, I I, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I didn't vote for Clinton. I didn't vote for Trump. I, I don't like either one of them. So I don't much care for Trump, but I'm going to vote for him in 2020. I like him better than Biden. And I like Biden as a nice guy, but uh, Trump's been way better than I ever expected. But this is just silly talk from the left uh, trying to defend themselves on Joe Biden and trying to distract from Tara Reid's accusations after the Christine Blasey Ford stuff. Might as well bring them all back. So in any event, I just, I, the hypocrisy on the left knows no bounds these days. And they're willing to hold a standard for Christine Blasey Ford and then rewrite history to avoid being held accountable. And, it, you know, it's it's crazy that the media will let them do this, will let them revise history on these things. I, I, I Silly me, I, I thought they actually believed all women. I, I thought they really wanted to tell the truth on the virus. Instead, they're just... Willing to cover for the left. I, you know, I've got to write my syndicated column uh, for creators. Uh, your newspaper should carry my column. They, you should. And you should subscribe to Substack for me and get my, my daily stuff yourself. Uh, but it, what, what's just fascinating to me and, and what I'll probably do in my column this week is, is say I, I really did want to believe that these people really were serious about these things, even if I disagree with them. But clearly it's not. It's, it's all partisanship for them. They really don't have morality. They like to look in the mirror and think they have a moral basis and that they're for truth, but they're really not. Uh, they're just for the left, and, and they're willing to prefer the truth as much as they say the right is. Uh, they are who they claim the other side is. It's true. Now, tomorrow uh, I will not be here, and you'll find out why next week. 
Uh, Chris Burns is going to be in for me. He is uh, the CEO of Dynamic Money. He's a friend. He's actually my financial advisor. He's a good guy. And uh, so I hope you'll tune in and follow me on Instagram at E.W. Erickson because I'll be using my smoker this weekend. I'll be pulling out my Mrs. Griffin's barbecue sauce, which you should go buy at the grocery store anyway. Um, we've got some new fans of Mrs. Griffin's. I'm glad they sponsored and, and raised their awareness because, man, got a whole lot of you people buying Mrs. Griffin's and you should. And I'll see you all next week.